Amen. Okay, so um, I think I'm going to go into our, uh, we just had Christmas, had a Christmas Eve service, uh, which was kind of funny uh, and fun and, and meaningful. It was nice to be together a little bit during, uh, during Christmas Eve, and uh, we're just happy for that. And today, uh, today we are going to be uh, speaking about Revelation 12. So if you have your Bible and you want to uh, kind of read along with us and, and kind of study this passage, we're going to be speaking about Revelation 12, which is this really interesting passage. Uh, Revelation 12 is about warfare in heaven and the warfare in heaven. And, and then the passages around it, like Revelation 13 and Revelation 11, 11 and um, so like 11, 12, 13, 14, they all kind of are talking about what's happening on the earth and what's happening um, in heaven. And uh, we've been speaking about um, the book of Revelation. We've been speaking out of the book of Revelation. We've been talking about Jesus's character and we've been um, speaking about who Jesus is as he's kind of expressed in this revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and that's been our, the theme that we've been trying to go, been trying to go through. And I was, you know, pushed a little bit spiritually to kind of speak about, um, about the dragon in Revelation 12. There's this dragon that's pictured multi-headed, um, very powerful, you know, red dragon that's pictured in Revelation 12. And, um, and so I'm going to be speaking today, this is just really interesting, I think, I'm going to be speaking about Jesus through the eyes of Satan. And now what I'm not advocating is that people go and pray to Satan, obviously, or ask or take hints from Satan directly about who Jesus is. Um, but the Bible talks, Bible talks about the character of Satan. It talks about um, the mission of Satan and the behaviors of Satan. And from that, we can kind of gain an interesting picture of who Jesus is and, um, and what he does. So the Bible actually gives us truth about Satan and his mission and his practices. And from that, I think we can learn things about who Jesus is and what he's doing, um, because it's truth. I mean, if you ask Satan, then he's just going to lie to you. But um, if you ask God, you know, what is Satan doing? I think you can get truth. And we have a tradition of this um, in, you know, earthly ways. People like uh, what came to mind the other day was like lawyers will kind of develop uh, oppositional teams and then they'll have competitions in order to try to understand what the, uh, you know, defense or the prosecution might do, uh, you know, in a court case or in war, you'll have people take the opposite side in strategy games in order to try to understand what the opposition might do. Um, in Christianity, we have that. We have C.S. Lewis writing screw tape letters, you know, where you have uh, kind of C.S. Lewis trying to take on the, the mind of a demon in order to understand uh, Christians from that perspective. And you can gain this insight into, um, into kind of what it, what it looks like to be a Christian from the opposite side. And um, and that can be very encouraging and kind of help us to understand who we are, you know, through the, through the eyes of an adversary. And um, so the other two verses that I wanted to kind of reference today was 1 Corinthians 9, 26, which says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. We don't want to be um, Christians who are, who are flailing meaninglessly. We don't want to be fighting in a battle with no enemy. We don't want to be sitting on a battlefield that's empty, you know, 
trying to stab the air. Um, we want to be meaningful. We want to actually be doing something that's happening right now. Um, and I think so often uh, Christians are sidelined just by not knowing how to battle, how to, how to engage in warfare, and sometimes can even be engaging in a friendly fire where we're hurting each other because we see each other as the enemy uh, because we're so blinded uh, as to what's really happening on the battlefield, what's really happening in spiritual warfare. So we don't want to be aimless. We don't want to be hurting, um, you know, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to be fighting the enemy. So we really need to know what the enemy's thinking and uh, the priorities of the enemy so that we know how to kind of engage in that. Um, and the other passage that I, that was just that this popped to me, it, it's, um, it feels meaningful. Um, Isaiah 62 verse, verses six and seven, which says, I have set watchmen, or sorry, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all day and all night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes him a praise in the earth. So this is a picture of being on the walls, being uh, in, a, in kind of warfare or pre-warfare where you are guarding, where you are aware of what's going on. And this is um, kind of talks about the centrality, the, the importance of Jerusalem. And um, so that just popped to me. I, I don't know if it's, it doesn't, it doesn't fit as nicely into my message, honestly, but um, it's, it's certainly relevant. And I feel like it's kind of another way of looking at, at, um, at this picture. And just it, to me, it just spoke about God's heart for Jerusalem and God's heart for um, his plan. And he has a sovereign plan that he, uh, he decided on. No, we didn't decide it. He decided on it. And we need to line up with him. We don't get to make the plan. We don't get to make the mission. He does. And uh, we function best when we line up with him. And so we can have all these feelings inside of ourselves. And these feelings are important because they help us to guide ourselves and to know what we need to work on personally, but they're, they don't shape the plan. We have to line up with his plan. So we have to deal with our feelings uh, about this so that we can shape ourselves and, and uh, pray for him to put us in alignment with him. And, um, and we needed to do that in ways that we often think about, like morality and things like this and our behavior and like being righteous and uh, kind of being able to love him through our obedience. But we also need to do uh, kind of this spiritual alignment where it's like we actually understand what his plan is. Now, it's kind of aside from righteousness. It's not about whether you're sinning or not sinning. It's about uh, this lining up with what he's doing on the earth right now and what he's going to do next. Okay, so Father, I just pray for wisdom. I pray that um, you would help us as a church to line up uh, with what you're doing, with the spiritual warfare that you want us to engage in. And thank you for giving us words for people who are receiving and sharing that with us. And, I, and uh, it's so helpful for us. And help us as leaders as we kind of wrestle with the words that you've given us and help us um, to discern and to work through this, you know, over time. And uh, please, please bless this word as I release it so that um, we can discern it together and that we can kind of uh, wrestle with your purposes and uh, that eventually we can be lined up with you more and more and in that way uh, be more effective uh, and relevant and uh, that we can be more spiritually uh, as we get spiritually lined up i believe that there's a grace that comes with that and and an excitement spiritually i just pray for that lord that as that we would 
feel your heart for what you're doing. And as we line up with you, we can feel you more and it'll just produce more and more love and enjoyment as we, uh, as we engage with a plan that's real and not just a fictional plan that we have made up in our minds. Amen. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so we're talking about, we're talking about spiritual warfare and a dragon, a dragon that's real. So this is again, Revelation 12. Now the, the central verse in Revelation 12 is, you know, Revelation 12, 10. This is my kind of central verse for this uh, passage, which is now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, you know, Satan, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So there's a victory here that I really want to emphasize because I'm going to be talking about kind of this power that Satan has and this, this, um, the direction that Satan has and how he sees Jesus and how he sees us and how he sees Israel and, and the Jewish remnant. And it can be frightening and, um, and there, but there is this victory and that's what we need to focus on as well is just understanding that as we engage in a war, it's a war unlike any other war that people engage in on the earth. When people engage in war on the earth, there's this uncertainty. How are things going to end? And are we going to win? Is this worth it? Am I dying for nothing? Am I fighting for nothing? One of the beautiful things that's different about um, engaging in in this spiritual warfare with the Lord is he tells us the ending. You know, we know where this is going and we know that it's not in vain. We know that the, there's the reward for us. We know that there's this powerful um, resurrection, um, this rapture into his presence at the end of this, no matter what the outcome is for each individual in the tent, in the short term, there is this overall victory that we get to engage in. And um, so it's just like, investing in something where you know it's going to go up and it's you know it's like it's unlike any war that anybody has ever engaged in before and we need to remind ourselves of that because even though it can be frightening in the process there's this victory the salvation and power and the kingdom of our god and authority of his christ have come and in this victory this accuser who's accusing us is going to be thrown down now, this war is going to happen on the earth, and we can talk about that, and that's when we start talking about, you know, the Antichrist and, and the Antichrist prophet and, and the things that maybe some of us have been more focused on and uh, been aware of, which is kind of like the 666 and the numbers and, and kind of identify, uh, identifying people who worship the beast and who don't and, um, and the kind of trouble that's going to come to the earth on the earth. And this is all very real. I, I don't know, obviously people have been surprised uh, for ages about exactly how these prophecies are revealed. So I'm not going to say that I have, you know, 100% understanding of how this is going to look. Um, I don't want to be presumptuous about that, but there are realities to these things that are coming. And there's kind of, you know, foreshadowings of them or preliminary pieces of them that are already here. You can see the setup for some of these things and you can kind of imagine much more now how that could actually happen than maybe people could 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago, or even 20 years ago. Um, the, the infrastructure for some of those things. So there's this warfare on the earth, which is very real. But today we're talking about the warfare in heaven, because what's happening on the earth is often reflected in what's happening in heaven. There's a spiritual reality um, that's very connected with this physical reality. And I mean, this, this distinction that we make is often not as 
real as we think it is. When people are in, when people are, things are happening spiritually, they're often happening physically at the same time. God loves the physical. He engages in the physical. He wants to change the physical just like he wants to change the spiritual. So there's this kind of this duality, you know, some things we can see and feel and there's a physical reality and some things there's not. So for sure there's a distinction, but there's this connection and, and parallel as well. And Revelation 12 is focused on the spiritual side. And it starts with Revelation 12, 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown, 12 stars. Now, last week we were, uh, Don James was talking about Israel and how, the, and replacement theology and how the church has kind of tried to erase uh, Israel from the Bible in a way, you know, replaced all these references to the to Israel and replace them with references to the church. And I believe that's happened here as well. People have talked about who is this woman, the, um, the apocalyptic woman who appears as a sign and with this moon and the sun and the stars. And um, I think because of just this bias, I think people have called her the church uh, and, and things like that. But I think it's much more, um, it's much easier to find justification for calling her Israel or for calling her Jewish or for calling her, I think the most accurate, you know, my current understanding, the most accurate way to reference her would be, would be to say the Jewish remnant, like the, 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 the Jewish people who are following the way uh, Jewish is the, the Jesus's plan through the age, the Jewish remnant through the ages and the, you know, through before Christ and after Christ, this Jewish remnant is this woman. And it's, the clearest reference, I mean, if you were to find the Bible, we usually use the Bible to try to explain the Bible and, and for, especially for symbols. And the other time where you see this exact reference, basically, is Joseph's dream when he is, um, you know, he has his coat and he has this dream of his brothers bowing down to him, is, um, which is basically Israel bowing down to him. And they have 11 stars. He's the 12th. And here they have 12 stars and it's this sun and the moon. And, and Israel is often referred to or has been referred to in the Old Testament as a, as a woman. And so we have this reference from, uh, from Genesis 37, 9. Um, and behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to me. And so it's like, this is most likely Israel. I believe it's Israel. Or this Jewish remnant. And the second big symbol that you see in Revelation 12 is this dragon. Now, this is much, there's no controversy around this one. This dragon is Satan. It's referred to as Satan, as a devil. It's, it's very clear. And it's this multi-headed dragon. And, and I could get into potentially, you know, what the heads mean and the crowns and the horns. And the, I think, um, and I think that there's some really good theories around that. And I'm not going to get into those specifics right now, other than to say, that it's a very powerful symbol. Multi-heads is multi more, more powerful. Um, you know, it's harder to kill. The, the, multi, the horns are usually a sign of power. Crowns are a sign of, you know, this royal sovereignty. So there's, there's this very powerful dragon and this woman. And in this passage, um, in Revelation 12, it, it goes on here to say, so after you have this woman and the dragon appear, you have um, this dragon in verse four, it says, halfway through it says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that, she, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So you have this picture of this dragon waiting 
for this Jewish uh, representation to give birth so that he could devour the child. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. We talked about rod of iron just a couple of weeks ago, which is Jesus. So this is a very clear reference to Jesus. So she gave birth to a male child who is the one to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So before the, the dragon can devour Jesus, Jesus is ascended. So here we have this, like from Revelation uh, 12, verse 1, down to here, there's basically six sentences, which has captured, you know, all of the Old Testament and, you know, up to the ascension. So it's kind of a replay of this, of, the, you know, most of the Bible uh, in a few sentences from this perspective of this spiritual warfare. And the main players in this very brief summary are Israel giving birth to a Messiah and the devil trying to devour the Messiah and failing. If we were to give this if we have a biblical summary of the important pieces, at least in this particular reference in terms of spiritual warfare, what is the important thing happening in this time frame? There's this Messiah and the Messiah is trying to be devoured and stopped all through history. All through this time, the devil's trying to stop this woman and trying to devour the Messiah. We see that in Herod most clearly, trying to kill the baby, and they fail. The baby escapes and ascends to heaven, right to the throne. Shoot, it failed. Okay. So that's the first piece of this spiritual warfare. Now, the next part of this is the dragon isn't just after Jesus. The dragon is after God's purpose. And the next part here is that the dragon failing to get the Messiah, failing to get Jesus. Now, this is where we start to get into, you know, post-ascension, starts to go after the woman. Revelation 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she was nourished for 1,260 days. And then there's this, so this woman is being pursued by, um, by the dragon and she flees and she has this place prepared for her. So again, Israel, this Jewish remnant is being pursued. The focus of the purposes of God is, or, and the purposes of Satan in this, in this instance, the Satan who's perceiving what's really happening is after this woman. He knows that this woman is kind of central to Jesus's purposes after Jesus first, and now this woman is connected with Jesus again and is after her. And this spurs this warfare in heaven. And <clears throat> I'm not going to read the whole warfare passage, but basically Michael throws down, Michael the archangel, throws down um, Satan from heavenly places. Uh, Satan has this place in heaven, and, and after this war with Michael, there's no more place for him. We have this reference, I mean, it might seem weird to see Satan in heaven, but it's referenced multiple times in the Bible that Satan has this place in what might be called the second heaven where he can influence, where he can accuse, repeatedly accuse believers. And Michael, when he's, when he's chasing after the ascension and when he's chasing Israel, he is defeated by Michael. Michael, and this is another, another small piece of evidence that this is Israel and, and the Jewish remnant is that Michael's often pictured as kind of this protector of Israel. And so Michael, in this warfare, throws down Satan out of heavenly places. And this is a huge victory. So verse 13, we pick it up. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman 
So even still, he's thrown down out of heaven and he's still after this woman, even after she's been protected. And he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, same woman. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent, from the devil again, this dragon, into the wilderness to a place where she was to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured, still the serpent's after her. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. So still it's relentless after its pursuit of this remnant of Israel. This is its primary goal. And again, even supernaturally, supernaturally through the wings of an eagle, supernaturally through this uh, swallowing up the water, multiple times there is this, this referencing to protection. Um, and in this wilderness, there's also this kind of picture that again lines up a little bit with Egypt, um, where you know this, there's multiple references to how the, the wilderness, protection in the wilderness, um, this pursuit, uh, and so the, finally, the dragon is so frustrated, he gives up on Israel, on this Jewish remnant. And the dragon, and verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now, it's weird to think of, you know, the, the church, um, as being offspring of Israel, but I think that's a very apt description. Um, on those who keep the, and we can make it clear here, and so he's, off the, uh, he's after the offspring of this woman, on those who keep the commands of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. So finally, he's actually after us. He's actually after uh, other Christians. Um, after all of this, Satan actually takes a stand against believers, um, which is kind of the third thing that Satan's up after here, as after here. So again, I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26. We don't want to run aimlessly. We want to understand. We don't want to box as one beating the air. We want to understand what Satan's doing here. And one of the most, uh, one of the things, I'm sure there's multiple, one of the things that we can get from this is from this dragon which again, I was kind of pushed to kind of study here, which I think is great, by the way, is, the, is his priorities. What is he after? What is Satan doing? First, he's after Jesus. And I, I mean, this is very clear. Like the first thing he's after is, the per, is Jesus and the throne. I mean, we talked about the rulership of Christ and, you know, ruling with an iron rod. And that's the picture given here by, you know, when we, when we think about, um, the, the, the warfare, the main thing that, this, that is central, the identity, it wasn't talking about Jesus's salvation. It wasn't talking about um, Jesus's provision or Jesus is a healer. There's so many identities of Christ, but the, the, the thing that's in central to the spiritual warfare is his rod of iron, his rulership. That's what Satan is wanting to destroy. And that's what he talks about him in different, when he's tempting Jesus, he tempts him with the rulership of the earth. I can give it to you. He wants to take this rulership of the earth. That's what Satan is interested in. That's what he's warring for. And so he's, I mean, he wants, don't get me wrong. 
I, Satan is filled with hate and lie and, and wants to destroy everybody. Um, but he's strategic. He has uh, his own mind Then he knows what's happening. It says he knows what's happening. He knows, his, later on it says, he knows his time is short when he's on the earth. He knows this, he has a mind and he is thinking through and prioritizing what he really wants. And he wants to destroy people. He wants to lie. He wants to hurt people for sure. But what he really wants is this rod of iron. He's after Jesus's rulership on the earth and to destroy that. And he's trying every way through history in a strategic fashion in order to take that back and, and foil God's main mission on the earth. He's not just randomly going around and, and doing things without a purpose. He has a purpose. He's trying to kill the baby. He's trying to kill Israel even afterwards because Israel has a purpose in, in, in God's mission even after Jesus. There's this mission that still needs to be fulfilled. And then finally, he's after us. And I believe that's because we have now also a purpose in bringing Israel and bringing the, in protecting the Jewish remnant and in um, provoking them uh, to follow God. It's all about the installation of a king. And it's very interesting because just before this in Revelation 11, it's talking about the seventh trumpet, which is the time when Jesus actually comes as a king. Like this is in that reference like that. And then there's this parenthetical place where it's like, okay, in, in Revelation 11, it's talking about these things that are going to happen. The seventh trumpet is going to happen and Jesus is going to come. And then there's parentheses and he kind of explains what's happening in heaven. He's explaining, okay, so Jesus is going to come and he's in Revelation 11. He's like, he's going to replace every ruler on the earth. He's going to come and his government is going to come and we're going to be caught up with him at the last trumpet. We're going to join his government. It's all going to be replaced. Now what's actually happening? And then it kind of just this parentheses in Revelation 12, where it starts talking about, it's not just in nothing that he comes back and takes this rod of iron. There's this whole spiritual drama that's happening as he takes back this rod of iron. Throughout history, there's, this has been its point of contention. The last trumpet, when he comes and actually takes his rulership, is one of the most contested spiritual realities. This is what it's all about. It's who's going to rule the earth. Is it going to be Adam, or the second Adam? I mean, that was what he went after Adam for. He was like, follow me, and we did. Followed him. And then, or is it going to be Jesus who takes it back? He's been fighting that the entire time. Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they will never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise of the earth. Jerusalem is where he's going to rule. I'm, I just, I have to say this. I, I It's not really a, a big biblical proof or anything, but I just remember the moment when I realized, I was like, why is you know, how we say the East and the West? I was like, what defines East and West? I thought it must be like, why is it not the ocean? Like the ocean should be what's West. And, and I was like, why is, you know, Britain West? And why is China East? Like, where is the line? I remember learning that the line runs right through the middle street of Israel, of Jerusalem. That's the, it's the central place in the earth. Like the, throughout history, this has been the central place. It is the central contested place because it's where Jesus is going to rule from. Now, as I read this, I, I mean, and I'm just, I think it's spurred, you know, by what Don was talking about last Sunday and, and 
there are things in the church that are contested. There are stumbling blocks. First of all, it's Jesus. Jesus is a huge stumbling block for the earth. You know, like to love him or to not love him. Is he a king? Is he God? But, you know, this is a huge stumbling block and it takes a great deal of spiritual revelation and, um, and humility to call him king. It's a huge stumbling block for the earth. And there's other ones that have kind of emerged, other stumbling blocks that have emerged in the earth uh, around morality, around sexual morality, on reproductive morality. There are things that have happened, uh, you know, around gender that, that are kind of stumbling blocks for, um, for the church and for people as, they, as, as the world creates its own morality and, and conflicts with God's reality, God's morality. And Israel is another stumbling block. Israel and its place in God's plan is a stumbling block and it's been there for as long as Israel has been around. It's been, uh, there's an anti-Semitism index in the world and, it, and, and it's watched carefully. And, and I believe that Christians are higher on it than non-Christians. Like there is this, um, this emotion I think most of the time it's not even understood why people are feeling this way, but there's this emotion that people feel towards Israel, um, towards its people. And it's really, when you don't have a spiritual frame of what's going on, it's quite difficult to understand. If you were to look at the story of Israel, if you were to look at the feelings about Israel, I mean, there are so many ethnic groups in the earth. Why this one? Why is everybody so focused on Israel and on, on, on the Jews and their nation is gone and they're dispersed for so much of so much of the last 2000 years, and yet still they become central, they create their own nation, and they're the focus of all of this attention and hatred, and why, why them? And it's so hard to understand unless you have a spiritual frame of what's going on, and it's, it's because there is this spiritual purpose to this, this people, the centrality of purpose. It's like the football, in a football game, there's lots of players on the field. There's only one football. That poor football is getting kicked. It's like it's it's flying around the field. Everybody's hitting each other over this thing, and it's the most. You could have a football game where people don't even know there's a football, and they're all fighting over position in the field. But it's actually all about where this football is. Who has the football? Where is the will it will it reach the goal line? There's a centrality of purpose, and you can see it in this passage because Satan knows about the football. It he knows about what's really important. He hates the other team. He hates everybody on the team. Can he can hurt them all for sure? But he also is focused primarily on the football and where that is. Now, there's two feelings that come up that create, I believe, that are central to creating anti-Semitism in, in everybody, particularly in the church. And, and I can feel them in myself when, it, when I feel this, when I just read about Israel. I can feel, you know, we, I want to use my own feelings. We, we can use our own our own feelings, not that they got, that they um, control us, we don't want them to, but we, you can understand things by understanding and being aware of our own feelings um, as they come up. And the first one that I have is jealousy. It's this, this seed of jealousy inside of myself. It's like, why not, why them? Why not me? And the second one is, is fear when I see this dragon and how powerful it is and how much destruction it brings. Those are the two feelings I wanted to talk about. There's probably more, but the two feelings I wanted to talk about quickly today was jealousy, which is huge. 
and the feeling of fairness around, around Jesus, people feel it around Jesus, a human being, they might not identify it perfectly. They might not identify it as, as uh, envy. I should probably say envy. Jealousy is when you have something that's actually yours and you have, and it's, that's why God is jealous. It's like, we're his, he's jealous for us because we're actually his and people have taken us away from him. Um, envy is when you want something that's not yours. And it's, uh, so we, it's not, it's not mine. I'm not Jewish. My mom wanted to be Jewish. We did the genetic test. Nope, not Jewish. <clears throat> so that's not mine. But why not me? Why can't I be the football? Right? And I think it's a feeling that's that there's a seed there that people that affects people even when they're not aware of it. The feeling of fairness is has been boiled down to this basic need. Now, psychologists sometimes wondered, there was an older theory where people thought that fairness was something that people used in order to get what they wanted. It was kind of like when something was unfair, I'm just gonna say, I, I want things to be fair because I want more. So it was kind of like, when you want more, you just claim fairness in order to get it. It was a utilitarian thing. That people just want more and they use fairness, this idea of fairness to get it. There really is that under that, there's no real ideal or need for fairness. It was just this way of people getting more. And that's actually faded now. Psychologists are starting to see more that fairness is actually a thing. Um, that people are happier and feel better when things are actually fair. In the experiments, it's not about just getting more. Now, don't get me wrong, people do want more and that can supersede the idea of fairness. People who get, they can, people can say, oh, okay, I won't be fair this time, I'll just take it, like that can happen. They can kind of shut down fairness in order to be greedy and take more. However, when people are fair, they function better, there's less punishment in themselves, they, they don't feel selfless, there's, it's easier, there's an easier flow when they, when they perceive things as fair. And there's this internal punishment for themselves when they're unfair and when others are unfair, there's this natural kind of function so there, uh, of, of dislike of themselves and others when people are unfair. So there is actually this reality of fairness in ourselves. Now you can shut it down and you can make it bigger and you can make it central or you can put it to the side, but there is this reality where we are punished when we are unfair and we are, things flow smoother and we have this kind of, um, this reward inside of ourselves when we're fair. And they do this through economic games. You know, they're like, do you, do you give the other person the same amount of money or do you give it through yourself? And, and they, they control for it all. And it's like, this is this, this reality that people actually experience this pleasure, uh, you know, when they have this feeling of fairness. Now, but fairness is, is actually based not on reality, it's based on our perception, which is tricky. So I'll give you an example. My kids, when, when any kid, well, use my kids, and this is true for all, is initially when kids are younger, they see a glass of water and they only look at the height of the liquid in the glass. They're like, okay, I have this much, you have this much, so you have more than me. It's all about the height. And as kids get older, they take more into account. And they'll, first of all, they get very upset about the height. My sister got more than me, I'm mad. So there's that fairness, it's just like, you know, and, and you can see it's very powerful in kids. And our kids, very powerful. And the idea of fairness. This, but then as kids get more sophisticated, as they get older, it's not just about the height of the liquid anymore. They can perceive the width. 
And so they're like, okay, and this just happened the other day. And I think it was one of the first times that Simeon did it unprompted was I gave each of them a glass of orange juice, very prized reward here is orange juice. So this was Christmas. So we had orange juice. We don't have this every day. So orange juice is a big deal. I poured some orange juice for each of them and I could, Simeon actually did it out loud. He said, Hey, Anna has more, a higher liquid. And then he stopped himself before I said anything. Oh, but her glass is thinner. Mine is thicker. So that makes sense. Mine is thicker, so he took more and more factors into account, and it made sense to him. We actually have a fair amount of liquid. Hers is higher, but it's thinner, so it actually is the same amount of orange juice for both of us. We're good to go, Dad. He perceived it on his own. He took two factors into account. When we see Israel as the football, we're taking more than one factor into account, maybe more than two but it's impossible for a human being to take all of the factors into account in order to measure the orange juice. We can't perceive all of the factors. We don't even know what all the factors are. When Jesus is out there pouring the orange juice into all the different glasses, he's taking so many things into account in order to understand how much orange juice each glass is getting. When he judges people, he judges people with all of the information, not just the ones that we can see. So we might say, hey, Israel is like the favored one. That's not fair. But we don't perceive that maybe they have more challenge. We don't perceive that um, they have more responsibility, that it's, we don't perceive, uh, maybe we, I just have those two. It's like, well, but there's also this responsibility. So that's like, they have more juice because it's higher, but oh, but they have more responsibility. So the glass is thinner. So that's only two. There are probably hundreds and thousands of each person of these different factors that God can see and measure and say, yes, but I am judging them fairly. Don't perceive them as being judged more generously than you. It's an upside down kingdoms. This is a, there is a reality where the way that we judge things is different than the way that he judges things. My kids, they're like, hey, it's too high. And I'm like, you can't see everything. It's also about the width of the glass. You're, it's not unfair. It would be very frustrating when the kids were younger. And I'm like, I don't have the same glass for each of you. you both have different glasses. And I'm trying to give you both the same orange juice, but you're so upset and fair. And so I'm like, trust me, it's fair. And they're like, oh, it's not fair. My sister has more than me. And, and as much as you can try to explain it to a three-year-old or a four-year-old, they often just can't get it. The fact that the glasses are different widths. Now, when we think about it spiritually, we're talking about glasses that are like curvy and thin and thick and have undulations. Marketers use this all the time. I was talking to my kids about this. You know, it's like when they give you a bottle, they make it look bigger by putting a big dent in the bottom. There are so many ways that we can see and we can't see that influence the amount of liquid that each person is getting and it's fair. So in the end of the day, we have to trust that God is a fair God. And we have to understand that we have to do what we have to do with what we're given. And we have to trust him to work it all out in the end. That we're gonna look at him in the end, we're gonna kneel down and we're gonna say, your justice is fair. You did the right thing. You give one candy, you give one kid a bunch of candies and the other kid, you give none. And then you say, go and share the candies. That's just the way he does it. Does one kid get more? Yeah, but they're supposed to share. So they have more responsibility. It's a different glass. 
Does one kid get yes? Yes, but they're supposed to get them from the other kid. And if they don't, God sees it. He knows that you were supposed to get candies and you didn't, and that's a test. He knows that you got more and you didn't share them, and that's a test. So anyway, there's lots of different things, and we need to trust him that he's fair, even when we don't perceive it. Even when we don't perceive it. The second one is fear. And fear takes people out. Um, not wanting to enter into the battle. When one of the reasons I'm talking about this dragon and the dragon's priorities is because I want us to enter into a battle, but many people don't want to enter into a battle. They feel that if they put down their weapons, they will be protected. If they exit the battle, they will be protected. Let me tell you, when you're fighting with a king, with an army, you want to stay with the army. Ask a zebra. You want to stick with the mission. You are most protected in the mission that God has given you. And now the, the best way to be a soldier is to listen to orders. And sometimes the orders can lead you far off into weird places, right? You know, it's like, well, it looks like the battle's over there, but I'm called to be over here. So there you go. And that's a very important thing. It's kind of like a hockey team and they're all just running around the puck. And it's like, we don't want to just all be in the middle of the fray. We all have to hold our position, even when it doesn't look like we're as relevant. But at the other, on the other side, <clears throat> when you're trying to understand the battle, it is very helpful to know where the football is. It's very helpful to know what the mission is. It's, and if you don't know what to do <clears throat> and you're a soldier and everybody's scattered and disorganized, you run to the king. You see the fire going up on the tower and you run to it and you protect the king. You run to the flag. So we want to be, we don't want to fight the air. We want to be in the battle. We want to be with the king and with the king's purpose. And you might say, well, that's dangerous. That's where the actual arrows are flying. That's where the actual swords are clashing. <clears throat> There's nothing more frustrating for a Christian than to pick up a sword, swing it, hit nothing and feel like the whole thing is irrelevant. Or to hit another Christian. We want to line up, and when we swing our sword, we want to hit something. We want to feel the king beside us and know that we are fighting with him. And when you see this story, what you're seeing is not a, a, a Satan killing a bunch of Christians and doing all the, I mean, just, it's in the story. It's like they didn't love, love their lives even unto death. It's so true, but the story, the spiritual story here is that when you are lined up with God's purpose, the devil is frustrated. He attacks and he's continually frustrated in miraculous ways. The king is snatched up. The, the people, the, the Jewish remnant is hidden. The devil attacks in this, with this river and it's swallowed up by the earth. There is this miraculous provision that happens when you're in the middle of God's purposes. If we fight where we're supposed to fight, we feel the, the, uh, the feeling of purpose and authority, and we, we might die, but we're in a battle that we're gonna win. We're in a war that we're actually gonna win. And we can experience this frustration of the devil as we know he's going to be defeated. Now it takes faith. 
and in the biggest way to overcome this fear of entering the battle isn't just, oh, we get to actually sing a, swing a sword and kill a demon or frustrate one. The biggest thing is love. That's what actually is going to cast out the fear that you're going to have as you enter into this fray. When you see that battle, like, don't get me wrong, there is that thing of like, I get, I feel this purpose. I get to actually go and be real. It's real. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than feeling like it's not real. When you're in that battle, it's like, it's real. But that's your love over there fighting. I mean, that's Jesus. We're not talking about some unnamed king. That's Jesus fighting. And when, when I talk about the devil attacking and, and understanding, we're understanding Jesus' purpose. Jesus is here to rule as a king, as an authority figure with his iron scepter. And that's what we want. And when you see him being attacked and frustrated and his people and his purpose and his football is being taken, we need to be there because we love him. We need to be there because we... And, and they're, they're, as you feel that love for him, that desire for for the person that you care about in order to be protected and have his mission come to fruition, his mission to actually happen on the earth. There's this desire to go and lay down before him and say, you can, I will take it. You, you will rule and you're going to get it all in the end. Anyway, you're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to be lifted up and raptured. And this is the way that you can go and love your King. And lie down and lie in front of him and protect him. Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. We all need to fulfill our purpose, the one that God gave us, and we need to do it out of love for the king. Now, one of the ways that we can help ourselves when we're struggling is to have hope and we need hope we can people can deal with a lot with hope they can hardly deal with anything without hope and <clears throat> when we see this when we see god laying this out for us it's about giving us hope when you know when we're doing therapy with people you can have them do uh, you know wishful thinking wishful thinking would be like everything's going to be fine right everything's just going to be okay and that's not helpful, generally. You can have them do positive self-talk where they kind of go and stand in front of a mirror and they just repeat things that they don't believe over and over and over again. And that's generally not helpful. I like positive self-talk. There's ways of helping people with that. I'm not gonna get into that today. But generally just saying something you don't believe doesn't create positive self-talk. What they found is helpful is actually creating a, like a, what they would call a hope map where you actually talk about goals and how you're going to achieve those goals and the, the fight that you're going to have to overcome in order to achieve those goals. Like you make a map of how you're actually going to get somewhere real, not just say to yourself in your chair, hey, it's all going to be okay in the end. When we read the book of Revelation, we're not supposed to sit back and say, it's, oh, it's all going to be okay in the end. I mean, that's real and it's helpful maybe a little bit, but we're actually supposed to create a map. And that's why we have it. We have it in order for us to understand the steps, at least on a broad scale of what's going to happen and what we're supposed to do. And when we have that, when we know it's like, okay, as a church, like for example, and this is what I'm feeling, as a church, we need to get behind this Jewish remnant. This is part of our purpose as a New Testament believing church, entering and getting closer 
I don't know how far away, but closer, obviously, every year that goes by to the end times, we need to be prepared to be the Christian that hides the Jew in the basement when the Nazis come, so to speak. You know, these, these birth pangs that have happened, these things that have happened, and like that's very real all of a sudden. We're praying for a Jewish remnant. We're, we're not pro-everything that Israel does, but we're pro-God's football. We're like, okay, I, this is your mission, is to have, the Jew, have them say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then you will return. We need to be behind that purpose of the Jewish people coming behind the Messiah. And we need to, to be with them and help them as they're hidden in the wilderness. We need to be with them and help them as the flood comes to destroy them. We need to be prepared to be Goshen for them. And we need to be, and as we stand up and line up with Israel, the devil, the dragon will see us. This is the reality. If we stand up and line up with Israel, just like every other stumbling block, if you want to have a war, line up with Jesus. If you want to not have a war, just say, I believe in God. If you want to have a fight, line up with Jesus. If you don't want to have a fight, then don't line up with sexual morality. Don't line up with reproductive morality. Don't line up with gender. But if you want to fight, line up with those things. If you don't want to fight, then don't line up with Israel. But if you want to fight, if you want, if you want to take on evil in the world, real evil, then line up with Israel. That's the football. That's the mission. Then you're going to catch the dragon's attention. So take your spear and go to the flag. Go to where the fighting is. Under God's leadership, of course. But I feel like that's what God is calling. I think that's what God is calling us. That's what we're discerning. And I feel that the, not just in a general way. I mean, obviously I'm in a general way. I'm like pro God's plan. But I think in a more overt way, I think we're called to fearlessly stand against this devil, to stand against it. And particularly as it's pictured in, in this Revelation 12, because that's the picture. Revelation 12, he's after this, after this remnant. We have been called to victory. I believe that. We've been called to have a turning around in victory. We've been having a call, we have a calling in order to be spiritually relevant and not just uh, a holding tank for people who are passively waiting for, for Jesus. I believe we're called to be a church that's relevant and active make, and making mistakes, but active and pushing and believing and prophetically oriented and engaged. And I believe that that's going to attract demonic attention. And I believe that we will be protected and, and that we may even be called to very significant sacrifices. But I also believe that we will feel God's purpose and pleasure in all of this, that we will feel the miraculous presence of God as we engage in real spiritual warfare, not just fake stuff that we make up in our head, but that as we engage in biblical spiritual warfare on the things that he's actually doing on the earth, we will be engaged in, in this real spiritual warfare and not just be beating the air off on our own. And we can see in this passage that Jesus, that Jesus is the, and his purpose, his rulership is the primary contested thing throughout this entire picture, which is covering the Bible. It's Jesus's rulership. And those who are closest to being part of Jesus, becoming a ruling king, his rod of iron are the things that the devil is most interested in. And that is him and the Jewish remnant and the people who line up 
with his testimony, the people who line up with his purpose. We're not called to just escape, we're called to engage. If you throw down your armor, you're just gonna be fighting the devil without any armor. You need to pick up your weapons. He's not gonna have mercy on you if you just wave the white flag. It may not feel fair, it may feel scary, but we have to remember that this is about love. It's about Jesus taking up his, his authority as a ruler at the seventh trumpet of him taking over every government and bringing peace and love to the world. And it's something that's worth us following. It's something that worth, that's worth us understanding and engaging with. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your guidance. I thank you that you have called us in our weakness to engage with you in your purposes. And it's always scary. So many people in the Bible respond with fear and say, not me, Lord. I'm not worthy. I'm not able. I'm scared. It, they're, they're going to defeat me. So, Father, I pray for a yes spirit in our church. I pray for, for courage to engage in, in this spiritual battle. I pray that we burn the bridges, that we burn the ships, and that we would walk forward into a new land, Lord, that we would say we're not turning back, and we are going to stand together. We are going to stand with you for love, for your goodness to fill the earth, for your peace and your righteousness. We're going to stand with you as close as, oh, Lord, I want to be as close to you as I can. How much will you let us be close to you? I want to fulfill every purpose. I want our church to fill every purpose that you have for us on this earth. Lord, I want you to tell us what we're supposed to do. I want you to design our map for us. Help us to understand exactly what that means. Give us that map so that we can have hope of the challenges that are coming. And Lord, I help, help us to bless Israel. Help us to bless this Jewish remnant. Help us to bless a home for you to land in, Lord, when you come back. Lord, let, let your home be ready for you, be prepared for you. Let your people and the children of your people be there saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We stand by your plan. In the name of Jesus, amen.